the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, September 2nd, 31 BCE. I'm Sally Helm. These Roman sailors know the wind. They have to. Even in times of peace, the direction and the strength of the wind are important for farming and for trading. And in times of war, wind can be the difference between life and death. For the past four days in the Ambracian Gulf, the wind has been strong. Here off the west coast of Greece and across the sea from the foot of Italy, the wind has been churning the water, moving it every which way conditions that make it impossible for warships to maneuver with precision. But today, finally, the wind has calmed, which means it's time for a battle, one that will determine the future of Rome. In two opposing camps, the men have been awake since well before dawn, preparing to fight. In the highlands overlooking the bay is one leader, the young Octavian, And down in the sandy, swampy flatlands of Actium is his former ally, Mark Antony. Each of them hopes that by the end of this war, he'll be the leader of Rome, and the other man will be dead. But technically, Octavian is not actually at war with Antony. He's at war with Antony's lover, the famous Egyptian queen, Cleopatra. Cleopatra is at Actium too, camped with Antony in that sandy swamp. Some sources say she's the one who came up with the battle plan. This morning, at first light, the ships get into formation and wait for the right wind. Around noon, it picks up. Antony's lumbering warships begin to advance towards Octavian's fleet. The ships try to ram each other. Soldiers shoot arrows and javelins or try to leap aboard the enemy's deck to fight at closer quarters. And then about two hours later, the wind changes again. It gets stronger, the waves get bigger, and Cleopatra's ship responds with a fateful move. She raises her purple sails. And followed by the squadron of ships under her command, she moves towards the open sea. This maneuver will transform the battle, and not just the battle. The whole future of Western civilization, uh, and for that matter, Eastern civilization, depended on it. I know that's a big claim. It's a really big claim. No, I love it. I'm so glad that it's the future of civilization at stake here. Tell me more. You know, to use a hackneyed phrase, it is a hinge of history. Today, that hinge of history, the Battle of Actium. How did Cleopatra wind up in the middle of a Roman game of tug of war? And how, by raising those purple sails, Did she help determine the course of her world? And our world, too. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
you may recognize the voice of Barry Strauss. Professor of History and Classics at Cornell University. I know who you are. This is your third time on the show. I think it's a History This Week record. Wow. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm honored. Strauss is the author of a new book, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. And the story starts on a famous date, the Ides of March. March 1544 BC. The leader of Rome, Julius Caesar, is assassinated, stabbed to death. He leaves behind a huge power vacuum. Everyone in Rome knows it. And one person on the scene at the time is the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. She was right there, practically in the center of the action on that terrible day. And where is she living? She's living in in the estate that Caesar owns in the hills opposite Rome, across the Tiber. And she was there, ensconced there, as Caesar's guest, as his mistress. She might have had her child. Cleopatra says that this child is Caesar's son. And though Caesar had never officially recognized him, he did allow Cleopatra to give the boy the name Ptolemy Caesar. Which kind of suggests he knew it was his son. Uh, And she was also pregnant by Caesar, expecting another child. Cleopatra is just 25 years old, but she's already one of the major power players of her time. Cleopatra is one of the great stateswomen of history. You know, she's able to speak seven languages at least. She is an absolutely brilliant person and cunning and versed in the arts of survival and the arts of power. She knows, as all Egyptian rulers do, that Egypt needs to be close to Rome. The Roman Empire dominates the region politically, but Egypt has a lot going for it too. Egypt at this period is the wealthiest place in the Mediterranean. No other single place is anything like the wealth that the Egyptians have. And the Romans want it, of course, so why don't they just grab it as they do with every place else? Because it's politically tricky. Rome is ruled by a collection of oligarchs, and if one of them made the move to annex Egypt, he'd have particular sway there. They'd be in his hip pocket, as it were. Of course, Romans don't have pockets. So in his purse, if you will. Romans didn't have pockets? No. We won't go down that rabbit hole, but huh, there are no pockets then. No, no no pockets. (laughs) They don't wear pants. Right. Where are your pockets going to be? Yeah, exactly. Right. So the Romans are competing with each other and saying, you can't take it. No, you can't take it. No, you can't take it. So Egypt manages to hold on. It's one of the few independent kingdoms in the region. But the power balance is very delicate. Egypt wants to avoid being annexed by Rome, but stay close enough for safety. And Cleopatra has gotten very close to Rome's leader, Julius Caesar. As the story goes, she engineered their first meeting by having herself smuggled into a palace wrapped in bed linens. Quite the impression to unroll those and find a future queen hiding inside. They began a sultry affair, one that made political sense for both of them. But it also seems to have been a true meeting of the minds. These two brilliant people, they might have been the two most brilliant people of their age. And the thought of the two of them together, it's absolutely explosive, dynamite. But now, on the Ides of March, Julius Caesar is gone. Her lover and her patron were dead. Suddenly, she was in a dangerous position in Rome. She's presumably shocked grieving. She may have suffered a miscarriage soon after Caesar's funeral. And along with everyone else in Rome, she's wondering, who is going to succeed Caesar? 
and take over this empire. She had to hang around for a bit to see what was going to happen, who was going to be the new power in Rome, and who she as queen would want to negotiate with and to work with. When she's at that moment looking out, like, who does she see? Who are the possible people who she might need to align with now? Yeah. So there's Brutus and Cassius who've assassinated Caesar. And then there is the surviving consul, one of the most powerful men in Rome and one of Caesar's military lieutenants, Mark Antony. So there's the pro-Caesar lieutenant, Mark Antony, the anti-Caesar forces, the assassins. And then a few days after Caesar's death, a new player. Caesar's will is read aloud. And... It turns out that he has adopted his grand-nephew, his sister's sister's son, Gaius Octavius. He offers him posthumous adoption, which, by the way, is completely illegal in Rome. There's no such thing. But Caesar's Caesar. He can do what he wants. We know Caesar's newly named 18-year-old adoptee as Octavian. But at the time, he's going around calling himself Caesar asserting himself as Caesar's rightful heir, which is a threat to Cleopatra. Remember, she has a son named after Caesar. She has to worry, well, what's my relationship going to be with this new guy who calls himself Caesar's son? Is she worried for her son's life? Is she worried someone's going to try to kill him? Oh, I'm sure she was. Less than a month after Caesar's murder, Cleopatra leaves Rome. She has to leave Rome because she's the queen of Egypt and she doesn't dare leave her country without her present there for long. She's co-ruling Egypt with her brother, even though she runs the show. Egypt has comparatively modern gender norms. Women can inherit property, file lawsuits, own ships. In Rome, meanwhile, men have authority over their wives and all legal rights to their children. But Cleopatra still has to deal with prejudice though she's sometimes able to use it to her advantage. She makes a virtue of being underestimated, and that allows her to fly under the radar again and again and again. Still, she needs to get back to her kingdom to defend her position. Politics in Egypt are just as brutal as those in Rome. The dynastic politics of her family were a blood sport, and to survive, she would have to oppose her brothers and her sister and ultimately, in fact, have a hand in their deaths. So Cleopatra returns home to the city of Alexandria, where Egypt's famous wealth is on full display. To quote a famous phrase, Cleopatra leaves a city of brick and comes to a city of marble. The splendid, gleaming marble city with probably the greatest harbor in the world. It's on the Mediterranean. It's blue. It's beautiful. It's open to the seas. It's got Greek buildings, temples, the palace, the museum, the lighthouse, the library. Rome is an absolute hick tan compared to Alexandria. There's really no comparison. Cleopatra is keeping a close eye on the chaos in Rome, where things quickly devolve into civil war. Caesar's assassins try to seize power, so Antony and Octavian team up to take them down. And it comes down to a showdown in northern Greece, and Antony and Octavian defeat Brutus and Cassius. Leaving Octavian and Antony as victors, together. They now basically have won all the marbles. They're the rulers of the Roman world. Another of Caesar's allies is also in play, but he's quickly shunted to the side. Antony and Octavian essentially divvy up the empire between them. 
In broad strokes, Octavian has the West and Antony has the East. That means Octavian has control of Italy, of Rome. But Antony actually has the competitive advantage. The eastern part of the empire is much more desirable. Why? Because that's where the money is. It's the population center of the empire. It's by far wealthier than the West. So Antony goes off on a tour of this region to raise some money and assert himself as leader. He also has designs on a military campaign in the Parthian Empire in modern-day Iran and Iraq. This is something Caesar had talked about but never achieved. So Antony is traveling through Cleopatra's region. And when he arrives in the city of Tarsus in modern-day Turkey, he sends her a message. Cleopatra has met Mark Antony before. She knows his reputation. He was a military man. He was dashing. He was handsome. He was proud and vain about his looks and very much a ladies' man. He's married, but he gets around. He's in the prime of his life, in his early 40s. He fought and bled for Caesar. And he's heard a rumor about Cleopatra's role in the recent war. She says, hey, Cleo, I hear that you were supporting Caesar's assassinants. What is the meaning of this? And she comes to Tarsus and she makes one of the most famous entrances in history. So Tarsus is on a river inland. She sails up the river in a splendid barge uh, that is gilded. It's got purple sails. She's dressed like Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And she is attended by young boys who are supposed to be Cupid. It is just kind of stunning looking. And the way Plutarch tells the story, Anthony's waiting for her on a dais, on a podium in the forum. And he is basically jilted. Everybody in town runs to the docks mm-hmm. to see Cleopatra. And she invites Antony to dinner. So wait, he called her there, but she invites him to dinner. That's right. Yeah. Okay. That's our Cleopatra. Cleopatra says to Antony, let's team up. We'll be political allies and we will be propaganda allies. And so they join forces in the bedroom as well as in the political arena. And he goes back with her to Alexandria to spend the winter together. Cleopatra has made her choice between Antony and Octavian for political reasons or personal. The default mode for historians is to say, love schmuv. All that matters in history is power. And if you don't say that, you're in danger of being called naive by your colleagues who all say, how could anyone fall for this love business? But there might have been. There really might have been. Their life together in Alexandria is famous for the sparks between the two of them. And there are all these wonderful anecdotes of how Cleopatra would do these games and tricks to amuse Antony and to one-up Antony. My favorite is the story of the most expensive dinner party in history. Cleopatra bets Antony that she can give the most expensive dinner party in history. And he says, I'd like to see you do that. And what she does is she takes this remarkable pearl that she has been given as a gift... According to Pliny the Elder, this was one of the largest pearls in the whole of history. And she puts it into a glass of vinegar that dissolves the pearl. Now, the story is that instantly the pearl is dissolved and she drinks it. Oh, my God. That's such a move. And she just drank it? She just, like, had it as her drink at dinner? Apparently. Who who knows if she drank the whole thing or if she just tasted it? Who knows? Wow, that's amazing. I love that. So they may indeed have been in love. 
In the year 40 BCE, Cleopatra gives birth to twins, Antony's son and daughter. But let's not forget that Antony is already married. And that same year, his wife suddenly dies. And Octavian, back in Rome, sees an opportunity. When you think of Octavian, think of Machiavelli, think of just the most cunning politician you possibly can. Octavian thinks Antony's wife is dead. Cleopatra is just his lover, not his bride. What if he marries my sister, who, confusingly, is named Octavia? Octavian thinks a marriage between Antony and Octavia could make sense. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. It makes sense for Antony, too. He's in this hot and heavy affair with Cleopatra, sure, but he still has his eye on becoming the ruler of the Roman Empire. And aligning with Octavian through marriage could be good for him. He could have sons who could conceivably even be the heir of Octavian. And that could reconcile these two families. That November, Antony returns to Rome to marry Octavia. It must have been a lavish, traditional Roman ceremony. A joining of hands, a torch-lit parade, animal guts examined for omens. Rome, remember, has been through years of civil war. And though Antony and Octavian have been sharing power in relative peace, there's still a sense that things might boil over into violence. But now, it seems that the fighting is over. They make peace in the year 40, and there's celebrations all over Italy. It's an era of good feelings. Everybody is smiling and shaking hands, and I'm sure they have knives behind their backs that they're sharpening, keeping ready for when the time is right. It doesn't take long. From the beginning, Octavia is likely spying for her brother, reporting back on Antony's moves. Because neither man is actually ready for peace. But they're not ready for out-and-out battle either. So Octavian instead begins an information war against Antony, a smear campaign. And there's an easy target. Antony is humiliating Octavian's own sister by continuing his affair with Cleopatra. So for Octavian, Antony is a once great Roman who has been corrupted by the evil Egyptian queen. He has been unmanned by Cleopatra. She's running the show. And he's left the life of the Roman army camp for a life of decadence, of soft couches, of golden goblets, of lots of wine. And Octavian is quick to portray Antony as a drunkard. One of the things that makes me laugh is he says, Antony even goes in for mosquito nets. Can you believe it? He's so soft that he's got to have mosquito nets. Antony releases a pamphlet in his own defense called On His Drunkenness. The exact argument is lost to history, but presumably it was something along the lines of no drunkenness to see here. And Antony also goes on the offensive against Octavian. Antony says, my ancestors are important people. This guy might call himself Julius Caesar, but let's not forget that he was born Gaius Octavius. His father was a nobody. I, Mark Antony, am great in battle. This guy's run away from battle. He's a coward. And by the way, he's sickly. He keeps getting sick at convenient moments and opportune times. And also, ultimately, what it comes down to is Antony and Cleopatra saying, we've got the only true heir of Julius Caesar. 
This imposter in Rome, he ain't no Caesar. In the summer of 32 BCE, Antony makes a fateful move. He sends Octavia a letter saying, I want a divorce. For Octavian, this is the last straw. He wants to get rid of this guy once and for all. But it's not so simple. After all, he had promised the Roman people publicly that the era of civil war was over. So Octavian? He does something fiendishly clever. He declares war on Cleopatra instead and says, she's the real enemy of Rome. She's the one, in effect, wearing the pants, not an expression the Romans would have used. They didn't wear pants. They didn't wear pants. She's the one wearing the toga, if you will. So she is the one to declare war on. He convinces the Senate to go along. In fact, he theatrically leads a group of cloaked senators to the temple of the war goddess Bellona, just outside Rome. There, he hurls down a spear to symbolize an attack. Cleopatra and Antony, he's saying, are enemies of Rome. He's going to wage a noble war to remove them from power. And the fighting begins. Antony and Cleopatra, of course, don't just sit by and take this. They gather support and resources in the East and fight back. They see it as a righteous defensive war against Octavian, who's declared war on Cleopatra, an innocent Roman ally who's never done anything against Rome. At first, it seems that Antony has the upper hand. By the autumn of 32 BCE, he's got troops stationed in strategic spots along the western coast of Greece, which gives him access to Italy, where Octavian is. But... It's very risky to invade Italy, and it's very politically correct to invade Italy with a foreign queen in tow. He didn't have the option of sending Cleopatra back to Egypt. Why? Because she's got the money and she refuses to go back to Egypt. And they're literally carrying the treasure? Like, it's there? Yeah, it's there. Yeah. Huh. It's a lot of gold and precious metals. She's got 60 ships full of riches and she's not taking them back to Alexandria. Why doesn't she want to go back to Egypt? Because she doesn't trust Antony. Because she knows that the minute she leaves, Octavian will try to make a deal with him and say, hey, Octavia's waiting for you. So Cleopatra and Antony stay put with their soldiers at the Bay of Actium on the west coast of Greece. Octavian's troops are in Italy. And here is where Antony makes a fateful move. Or really, it's the lack of any move that is fateful. Antony was a competent general, but not a brilliant one. Not like Caesar. And he decides to do nothing. Antony and Cleopatra sit on the west coast of Greece and say the enemy will come to us and we'll defeat him there. That's not a Caesar move. Caesar's not the kind of guy to sit around. It's Octavian who makes the Caesar move. Octavian brings his troops across the sea to Greece. They're led by Agrippa, Octavian's right-hand man. His best admiral. And instead of taking the short crossing, they take the long crossing to the southernmost point in the Peloponnesus, about as far as it can go, to a place called Methoni. Never heard of it, but is a very strategic harbor in the southwestern coast of Greece. Why is it so important? Because Antony and Cleopatra, who wintered, by the way, in a city on the west coast of Greece, they can't feed their army and navy, a huge group of men, on the resources of Greece. They have to have supply lines that go all the way back to Egypt and Syria and Judea, And those supply lines all connect through this port, 
a port that Octavian now controls. This is a very important moment in this struggle, and the initiative has now shifted suddenly. Octavian is strangling Antony and his forces. He's cut off their food supply. Antony's men are soon starving. They're also weakened by the summer heat. More and more of them are defecting, going to join Octavian. Some of them are getting sick from dysentery and malaria. And Antony and Cleopatra realize the game is up. We have to leave Actium. We can't afford to stay here anymore. The best way out, they decide, is by sea. They think it'll give them the best chance of preserving their riches, which are housed on all those ships. So they begin to plan their escape. What's their hope here? Like, what do they think is going to happen? So as near as we can reconstruct, they think the likeliest thing is they're going to fight a breakout battle. There are many breakout battles in history. Uh, They are what the name suggests. Your hope is to be able to break through the enemy's fleet and save as many of your ships as you can so you can live to fight again another day. Octavian has more ships in strategic positions in the water off the western coast of Greece. But Antony's ships are stronger, good for ramming the enemy's ships, which can help turn a naval battle in your favor. So he thinks, with the right plan of attack, he'll be able to get many of his ships out, particularly those ships carrying the treasure. But... There are many people who turn on him, and one turns on him at the 11th hour, Just before the battle, he goes to Octavian and he tells Octavian Antony's battle plan. Antony doesn't know it, but as he sails into battle on the morning of September 2nd, the deck is already stacked against him. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. September 2nd, 31 BCE. Antony is at Actium, in a sandy, swampy camp on the west coast of Greece. Octavian is at his camp on the Greek mainland in the hills to the north of Actium. In the pre-dawn hours, the two sides leave their tents and they prepare to board their ships. Dawn comes in that part of the world at that time of year, just after 6 a.m. And the two fleets sail out around 10 a.m., They are in line against each other. And then they wait for the right wind. Antony's ships are about a half mile from shore. It's around noon when the sea breeze begins to blow. And it's around then that Antony begins his charge against the enemy. But Octavian knows exactly what is coming. He's prepared. 
he stationed his fleet about a mile away from Antony and Cleopatra's. Meaning... In order for Antony to ram the enemy ships, his men have to row a long distance. And they are too tired after rowing that mile to be able to, to make a breakthrough. Remember, they're already underfed, beset by disease. And now they have to row these heavy boats a long distance. By the time Antony's ships are face-to-face with Octavian's, his men are too weak to ram effectively. Instead, they use catapults and iron hooks. There's also fighting on the decks. And as the two sides come to blows, Antony and Cleopatra can see that they're losing. There's no way their forces have the strength to outlast Octavian's. So around 3 p.m., when the wind picks up, Cleopatra makes a move. She leads her 60 ships of royal treasure in an escape. If the sources are to believe, she has a gilded ship with a purple sail. And people see it. So the sail goes up and they think, oh, a sail. That doesn't mean you're ramming these other ships right here in this channel. That means you're You're out out of here. This has been reported in the sources, which are quite hostile, as, ah, just like a woman, just like an Egyptian. She lost her nerve. She betrayed her lover and she fled. But that's not what happened. This was always the plan. If we don't win a smashing victory at first, when the wind blows up, we will leave with the treasure and as many of our ships as we possibly can. In fact, Antony and Cleopatra had loaded their masts and sails onto their warships before the battle to leave their options open. Antony leaves his flagship and boards Cleopatra's. And then they sail away. He is violating kind of the unwritten rules of Roman warfare. The generals are to go down with his men. Most of Antony's ships are continuing to fight. They don't surrender. They probably don't even know that Antony has left. The battle rages on without its leaders. Troops are ramming their ships into the other ships, shooting arrows, launching catapults. But once Octavian and Agrippa begin shooting fire arrows, setting the enemy ships aflame, Antony's troops are forced to surrender. There are a lot of casualties. Octavian, in his official memoir, says that 5,000 men died in Mark Antony's fleet. But there's another source that I like better that says that 12,000 men died in Mark Antony's fleet and 6,000 were wounded. Octavian doesn't want the Romans to know how bad things were because this is a civil war. This is Romans killing Romans. It's not going to go over well in Rome, but that's probably the ugly reality of this. When Cleopatra returns to Egypt, she sails in on a ship decked out with victory reeds. So that everybody thinks she's won. And then as soon as she's there and she's safe, she has her supporters kill her enemies at home uh, to make sure that no one can rise up against her. Antony and Cleopatra haven't given up yet. For the next few months, they try to figure out a new plan, fight or flight. But Octavian is making his way towards Egypt. Antony and Cleopatra are in a corner, and ultimately, they're each out for themselves. Separately, they try to negotiate with the man who is clearly going to be the victor here. Cleopatra and Antony each send separate ambassadors to Octavian, saying, you know, we'll give up. If you give me X, Y, and Z, Antony wants to be able to retire outside of Rome and be left alone. Cleopatra offers to give up Antony. If she can be queen of Egypt, when that doesn't work, she said, okay, I won't be queen, but spare my children 
and let one of them rule in my stead. Octavian keeps his cards close to his chest. He's non-committal. They send him huge bribes. He pockets the bribes, but he doesn't offer them anything. On July 31st, Octavian's troops are closing in on Alexandria. The following day, August 1st, Antony dons his armor and leads his men into battle. But within the day, his cavalry has deserted him. At sea, his crews row out to meet Octavians, and instead of ramming into them, they salute them. Antony is defeated and alone. When he returns to Alexandria, the city of marble, he hears a horrible rumor. He doesn't know this, but it was spread by his lover, Cleopatra, herself. She spreads the word that she's committed suicide. Why? To encourage him to commit suicide. Wow, okay, so she, at this point, wants Antony out of the way. Yeah, she wants him out of the way. So he hears that she's dead, and then what does he do? He tries to commit suicide. He gets his faithful slave to kill him, but his faithful slave says, no way, I'll kill myself first, and he does. So now Antony has to fall on his sword. Sounds better than it really is. Falling on your sword means basically opening up your gut, your intestines spill out. He doesn't die. It's really painful. Meanwhile, Cleopatra's not actually dead. No, she's gone to her mausoleum. So she's built this fortress, a mausoleum come fortress where she intends to hole up with her fortune and say to Octavian, give me what I want or I'll burn everything. Myself and everything, you'll get nothing. But for whatever reason, when Cleopatra hears what's happened to Antony, she tells him the truth and he comes to her. And then there's this completely stunning scene where the only way to get into the mausoleum is to be hauled up on, well, a kind of construction apparatus. It's the mausoleum is being built. It's not even completely built yet. So her women supposedly haul him up to an upper window and Antony goes in and he sees Cleopatra and he asks for some wine to deal with the pain and he dies in his lover's arms. When Octavian enters Alexandria, he finds Antony dead and Cleopatra mourning. He meets with the great Egyptian queen face to face. We'll never know quite what was said, but shortly after they talk, Cleopatra, dressed in full royal regalia, is found dead. Ancient sources say she dies by suicide and that it involved a snake. The story that everybody loves is that she smuggled in an asp to kill her in a a basket of figs. Historians don't know what to do with this story. Do we believe it or not? I consulted a herpetologist who assured me that from the point of view of snakes, it's possible. Whether it really happened or not, we don't know. There are even some historians who say, nonsense, none of it happened. Octavian killed her. And then he kids out this fairy story that she committed suicide. But I, I don't really believe that. There's no evidence for that in the sources. If Cleopatra did take her own life, it might have been a matter of dignity. The queen herself said that she didn't want to be trotted through Rome as a trophy. Or maybe she cut a deal with Octavian. I'll get out of the way if you take care of my children. And indeed, her children are brought to Rome and raised by, of all people, Mark Antony's widow, Octavia. Octavia raises them alongside five children of her own and another of Antony's kids. Meanwhile, her brother wastes no time in establishing his victory. Before the month is over, Octavian has conquered Egypt. The Senate will soon give him a new title, Augustus, or 
revered one. Remember, this was a war of East versus West, and Antony and Cleopatra's East loses, which has far-reaching consequences. If Antony and Cleopatra had won that day, the Roman Empire would have looked eastward. Our culture would be a Greek-speaking culture rather than a Latin-speaking culture. Let us imagine that Christianity developed. We don't know if it would, but let's say it did. Latin Christianity wouldn't be the basis of Western Europe. It would be Orthodox. What if what is now Iraq had become part of the Roman Empire? That would have been a very different world than the one we live in. And our society, I think, in many ways would be more Eastern than it is. It's possible, too, that the victory of a great queen might have changed things for the queens and the other women who came after. If Antony and Cleopatra had won at Actium, the mores and culture of Egypt, which gave women more power, certainly, than Rome did, would have been more influential. And this certainly defined the way that Cleopatra herself is remembered. We don't have any friendly sources to Antony and Cleopatra. They lost. They didn't get to write the history. The other side got to write the history. So, of course, they want to say Cleopatra was a coward and just a a flighty woman who couldn't stand and fight like a man and she betrays her lover, wouldn't you know it? In fact, she was a great queen in the mold of Elizabeth I of England or Catherine the Great of Russia. She's a stateswoman in the mold of Golda Meir or Margaret Thatcher or Indira Gandhi. That's the real Cleopatra. She's remembered in the East as a great administrator. And in the Muslim world, she's thought of as a virtuous scholar, an intellectual, a great monarch. I think that's how Cleopatra would be remembered if if she and Antony had won the battle. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Thanks to our guest today, Barry Strauss, author of The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. This episode was produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by Jim O'Grady and Jimmy Gutierrez and sound designed by Brian Flood. History This Week is also produced by Morgan Givens and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our intern is Francesca Mevs. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.